Well, good morning. So, uh, this morning we are going to be looking again at Matthew chapter 5. This is part 2, and since this is the first time I've ever preached as an elder, first time ever preached two Sundays in a row, my uh, creativity is starting to uh, go away. So, the title of the sermon is Salt, Light, and Law, and the key words are salt, light, and law. So that should be easy for us to remember this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Last week we read verse 1 all the way to 20. This morning I'm just going to read starting in verse 13. We're going to read the passages. We're going to do a short recap. And then we're probably going to, we're going to talk a little bit more about salt and light. And then we're going to spend the most rest of our time this morning on verse 17. So let me read Matthew 5, starting in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So last week, we talked about Matthew, the book of Matthew. We talked about that it's the most quoted gospel in the early church. And this is where Christians went and still go, especially in the early church, though, to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one. We talked about how R.T. France in his commentary says that it can be said that the central theme of Matthew's gospel is fulfillment. Everything in your Bible ultimately points to Jesus. Even the Old Testament stories are about him and point to him. And the one main Old Testament theme is that Jesus is the long-awaited king, and he brought his kingdom as planned from eternity past. Jesus fulfilled everything expected of the Messiah. And Matthew goes to great length picking up on Jewish thought to show that the kingdom of the Messiah has arrived. We looked at Matthew 1, verse 23, where he quotes Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at Matthew 2, and we saw how God was even controlling the stars to bring pagan wise men to worship the king, widening his kingdom already outside of the Jewish nation. We saw Matthew 2, 15. We saw that that's the fulfillment of Hosea 11:1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. 
We saw in Matthew 3, we talked about John the Baptist. You know, John, this Jesus cousin, this kind of wild, little different. But in Matthew 3, 2, he calls people. This is, was very important to called John called people to repentance and told them that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, at your fingertips. Some translate this as has arrived. God is at hand. He's close. He's nearby. And we looked at this phrase, kingdom of heaven, and that it's the same as kingdom of God, and it literally means God ruling. So his kingdom means his rule, his reign. It's a constant theme in the Old Testament. God's ruling and reigning from Genesis to Malachi. And then Matthew 4, we looked at how Jesus, when he went to the desert, he was tempted. And the third time he was tempted with the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And this is paramount to offering Jesus the status of king of kings. This is what the devil offered Jesus. And we asked, why would Satan offer this? Because he knew his Bible and he knew that that's what Jesus came for. Satan knows Isaiah 2, 2 through 3 that says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the devil knew what to tempt Jesus with. Lastly, we looked at in Matthew 4, verse 15, where he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So we looked at this theme of light and darkness. It goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way to Genesis 1. God brings light that scatters the, dark, the darkness. And we see now that darkness is being scattered by the light. God has brought a great light. This is what God does, and this is what he wants. We looked a few verses later on in Isaiah 9, which tells us that God himself is the one coming down to bring his kingdom and scatter the darkness. The verse that we know very well, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and when this happens... The government shall be upon his shoulder, and the name and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gabor, Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Finally, we looked at Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' most famous sermon, most famous sermon of all time. Jesus declares divine happiness, God's happiness, God's joy to people who are blessed by him. In verse 5, we saw that the meek will inherit what? The earth. And we talked about the earth for a little bit. We looked at Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, where verse, in verse 10, it says that as a plan for the fullness of time, 
Jesus came to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we talked about how the earth is a part of God's plan, that whatever you think happens to it, it is currently part of his plan. And we looked at Colossians 1, verse 20. It says, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And then lastly, we looked at Revelations 5, 9, and 10. It says, by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the earth is important. We have a purpose to cultivate, to take dominion, to multiply. And our purpose here on earth is to reflect his light. And he put us here for a reason. We're part of his plan. We have a job to do. And we need a biblical worldview over everything to accomplish that. We talked about, Jesus says here, you are the salt and you are the light. If you are a Christian, you don't try to be salt and light. You are salt and light. So we need to know our Bibles and do what it says and submit to its authority in all of life. And in verse 13, it says that what happens if we don't be salt and light? That we'd be good for nothing. That we would be trampled under people's feet. So picking up on that this morning. Some of the Old Testament apocryphal writings list salt as one of the essential elements for human life. It says the world cannot endure without salt. And so Jesus' disciples are no less essential to the well-being of the earth. He says that you are the salt of the earth, not just Israel, not just Palestine, but he says you are the salt of the earth. And so as Christians, as people who follow Christ, our job is to salt the world and stop it from decaying, not to sit around and complain and ask God to take us out of the world like he said not to do in John 17. So what I want you to understand this morning that it's not the unbeliever's world. It's not the radical atheist world. It's not even the devil's world. It is God's world. What do the meek inherit? The earth. Where do the ransomed people of God reign? The earth. We need to take our saltiness to the worst tasting, the blandest, the most rotten and rotting parts of the earth. And that may be right next door or maybe down the street or one county over or across the state. Maybe it's in Atlanta. Maybe it's across the country. Or maybe it's on the other side of the world. But we need to cover it all with salt and light. R.T. France in his commentary, and you don't have to turn there, but, oh, by the way, if you're taking notes, I'm going to have a lot of scripture again this morning, so write them down. We're going to go look at some, but try to write these down. Mark 9, verses 49 through 50, and Colossians 4, Verse 6. I don't have time to go there, but if you look at those verses, you'll see that Saul is referring to its beneficial impact on human relationships. When the Bible mentions salt, it's usually referring to its beneficial impacts. Disciples are to provide flavor. We're supposed to make life taste better. So the thought of salt is like wisdom. We provide wisdom. Now, salt had two primary duties. in in the times that the Bible was written. One was to give things flavor, just like today. And two, it was used as a preservative because I think I mentioned this, they had no refrigeration and it kept meat and food from decaying, from spoiling. 
from rotting and stinking. And I use those words intentionally. Unsalty salt is a contradiction. It's like dry water. It doesn't make sense. If it's not salty, then it's not salt. So salt in the ancient world was not usually pure like our salt is today. So it contained a mixture of other minerals, and it was possible for the true content to be washed out, leaving a useless residue. So Jesus is indicting disciples who have lost their distinctiveness and no longer have anything to contribute to society. Tasteless, in verse 13, means to become foolish. It's the opposite of wisdom. The result then is being what? Trampled under the foot of people. It is simply thrown out to the street as garbage. It's good for nothing. So I want you to think a minute about how Bible-believing conservative Christians, how we're generally thought about and portrayed in our culture, in the arts, in science, in academics. How are we viewed? We're normally laughed at or disdained because we have lost our salt. We have no vision of the future beyond a few years when the reality is Christianity provided the foundation for art and for science and for academic thought. Christians in the past were the ones that made world-changing art and scientific advances. Have you ever thought about why the Western world advanced industrial and te- industrially and technologically before the rest of the world? It's because we have a worldview that understands, that not o- understands not only that we can do science and art, but we understand how and why we can do those things. Because we have a creator who created an orderly world And we reflect his attributes when we create and discover and explore his creation. So as a matter of fact, Christianity is the only system of thought that can ever provide the justification for objective standards of laws, of truth, of goodness, of beauty, of science and logic. So friends, what I want to tell you this morning, what I think is that we have lost our savor. We've lost our taste. We're allowing 60 million babies to be murdered over the last 40 years. We've allowed the destruction of the family, starting with a cavalier attitude toward divorce and promiscuity. Now, how do we become salty again? Well, I don't think it's that difficult. We follow biblical wisdom in all areas of of our lives, and we don't hide it under a bushel. Remember our song? Hide it under a bushel. No, no. We don't hide it under a bushel. We are the salt, but we're keeping it in the salt shaker. Bad salt goes to the garbage heap and is thrown out. We, the church, need to proclaim God's standards to the world and the message of the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, and his redemption. So let me ask you, do you know God's standards? Do you know his wisdom? Has God given you the grace to know him? And love him and follow him. Salt must be salty. We must be what we proclaim. We must walk what we talk. So very practically, we need to ask ourselves, what do I have to risk? What do I have to give up? What kind of sin do I need to overcome and put down? Let me, let me tell you, your, our lives go by fast, right? That's a biblical thought. Our lives are vapors. We have very little time And we are a dying people. So I want you to ask God, how can he use you to be salt and light? It's going to take some courage. It's not always going to be easy. 
And maybe you've blown it, because I know I have. But today is the day to repent. We need to repent of indifference, of laziness, lack of love, individually and as a church, especially the church in our country. Look, we've got to prioritize the things of God, Bible intake, fellowship, Bible study, evangelism. Do you know one of the things that God uses to make us know his word and know him more is when we take the gospel to the streets. When we get challenged on our faith, on our understanding of God's word, that pushes us back into his word, back into fellowship with his church. We have a job to do. So verse 14, we already saw that in um, Matthew 4, 16, Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, where the light symbolized the new hope that came through Jesus' preaching of the coming of God's reign on earth. So where there's light, people can find their way. And where there's light, things are clear. We have clarity. But where there's darkness, we stumble. And where there's darkness, people get lost. So we are to share in Jesus' mission of gospel proclamation and deliverance to be a, quote, light to the nations from Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. So the world needs that light, and, through, and it is through Jesus' disciples, that you, that's you and me, that it must be made visible. I'm going to read some verses. I'm only going to go to one. We're going to go to Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, if you, if you want to turn there. But I want to look at a few verses in John as well. John 17, 18 says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We, we read that last week. Jesus The Father sent Jesus into the world, and he tells us very explicitly that he's sending us into the world. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 11, 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John 3, 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And this is a big thought in the Bible, that we are to be exposing. I mean, this is why why we go to the abortion mill, to expose what's going on there. Ephesians 5, 8, 8 through 14 I'm going to read that. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's not a linking verb, it's an action verb. Expose them. This is what we are supposed to be doing, exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So Jesus is the light of the world. He's a source of light, but we are his light bearers. We cannot disengage from the world. Why not? Because Jesus is king. That's why. He is the ultimate authority and has all authority on heaven and on earth. There's no one above him. There's no one else to appeal to. And he rules today on his throne, and we are his salt and light. 
Now, the world loves death and darkness and spoils and rots in darkness without salt and light. We are God's wisdom to the world. Not our wisdom. That's very important. It's not our wisdom because we'll get accused of that, but it's God's wisdom. How is God using the church in our generation, in our culture where we are? We have, we have to do both. We have to be salt to preserve, and we have to be light to cast away the darkness. Isaiah 9.2, again, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah 49.6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the trials of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Listen, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God's telling us what his plan is. He's telling us specifically what he wants to do. We get the same honor and privilege as Israel. It's an amazing privilege. It's an incredible blessing. Talking about growing your faith, but are we doing it? Are we preserving? Are we shining? Now, what's our ultimate goal? Verse 16 in chapter 5 tells us it's to bring glory to ourselves? No. No, it better not be. If it is, we need to repent. Our ultimate goal is to give glory to God the Father. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. If you want to turn there, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all six verses, but I'm going to look at verse 4 and verse 6. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we are to be God's light to spread the gospel and show the excellencies of Jesus Christ. So I know I don't have to remind you that out there in the world, the gospel will not always have a positive reception. But the glory of the gospel is that he speaks into the blind and veiled and opens their eyes, but only because God is speaking light into the darkness. But be what you are, be light. But our hope is that it is God himself who shines light into darkness. So we can take a risk for God. Look, you may be asking, how can you, how can you be salt and light? It sounds kind of big, right? It sounds like a pretty big job, a pretty big deal. Maybe, maybe there's even a fight or two involved. But it starts in the home. Let me just encourage you that it starts in the home. To your spouse, to your kids, your family, moms that stay at home, you need to be salt and light in your home to your children and spouse and family. No matter how small or ordinary you think that is, that's where God has you. Look, a small light does wonders in a dark place. Have you ever seen a small light in a dark place? It does a lot. And guess what? When you get a lot of small lights together in one place, look out because something's about to get lit up when you have a lot of light. The darkness, by its nature, disperses in light. Salt can't help but make things taste better. 
we are called to love the world, not by being light necessarily, but by being light, salt and light. You know what the only thing that can stop salt and light? If it just doesn't show up, if it's not there. If it stays in the salt shaker, it's not going to help anything. So as God's people, we need to show up in the world. We need to be the salt and the light that God is calling us to be. Okay, moving on to verse 17, chapter 5. I'm going to read that. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? Some have gotten the, what I think, wrong idea about this verse. In other words, that the law of God is just not important anymore. That the God of the Old Testament, you may have heard this, kind of this mean, unloving, harsh God. And now we have Jesus who's nice and he's less concerned about the law. There's also a pervasive thought that we don't refer to anything in the Old Testament unless the New Testament repeats it. That the Old Testament's gone, it's kind of not relevant. Let's see what the Bible has to say about that. The beginning of verse 17, this is very important. Jesus says, do not think. The Greek word there is me nomasete, which means, which we have interpreted in our Bible, do not think, me nomasete. And I'm told that in the Aorist tense, this makes it a very forceful thought. There's a lot of force behind these words, but it literally means do not even begin to start thinking this, Right? We've got to remember, Jesus wrote the Old Testament, right? Jesus is God. He's Yahweh. He wrote the Old Testament. And I believe that he has a psalmist heart inside of him. Psalm 119, verse 33 says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Your righteousness give me life. So if Jesus had come and if he had denigrated or lessened the law in any way, he could and he would have been refuted by his Jewish opponents. They would have been looking, they were looking for a chance to do that. I want to quote John Calvin in his commentary on this verse. He says, and I quote, Christ, therefore, now declares that his doctrine is so far from being at variance with the law that it agrees perfectly with the law and the prophets. And not only so, but brings the complete fulfillment of them. He says also, Now the preaching of the gospel tended to raise the expectation that the church would assume a totally different form from what had previously belonged to it. They thought that the ancient and accustomed government was to be abolished. This opinion, in many respects, was very dangerous. Devout worshipers of God would never have embraced the gospel if it had been a revolt from the law, while light and turbulent spirits would eagerly have seized on the occasion offered to them for entirely overthrowing the state of religion. For we know in what insolent freaks rash people are ready to indulge when there is anything new. 
So he's basically saying if, God, if Jesus had come to do away or lessen the law, people would have freaked out. That's what John Calvin said. Of course, there are changes in the administration and fulfillment of the law, and we'll get to that in a bit. But I want to humbly suggest that we are reaping the rewards of treating the law as non-relevant in our lives. So this phrase, law and the prophets, is another way to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament. We see that in, you write it down if you want to go look, Matthew twenty-two forty, Luke 16, 16, uses the law and the prophets in this way. Everything that we need to know, I want to go back to the Messiah for a minute, the theme of the Messiah. Everything we need to know about the Messiah is found in the Old Testament, right? The who, Isaiah 9, 6, the where, Micah 5, 2, and the why, the how, etc. But I want to lay out two overarching missions of the Messiah real quick from the Old Testament, okay? And go there if you want, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that I'm told in the Jewish synagogues they skip over because it's so much points to Christ as the Messiah. They absolutely go from chapter 52 to chapter 54 for no reason, and they just don't want to read it. Isaiah 53 brings us the first overarching mission of the Messiah, and that is salvation. The Messiah brings salvation. Just going to point out a few highlights from uh, that chapter because I don't have time to read the whole thing. It says that he, in verse 2, it says he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. There was nothing grand or majestic about where Jesus came from. Verse 4 says he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Verse 12 says that he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, with the rebellious ones. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the Messiah was to bring salvation. He was to bear the sin of many of his people. And we get that, right? We've got that pretty well, I think. We understand that Jesus came to provide salvation, but there's a second theme in the Old Testament that I feel like we miss sometimes, and that is a theme of renewal. The Messiah brought salvation and renewal. Isaiah 2, again, verses 1 through 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow up to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, the Torah, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the Torah is going forth from Zion or from God's people. 
Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 again. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Those are names for God, for Yahweh. Mighty God, El Gabor, another name for God. Everlasting Father or Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal, the host will do this. I know I'm repeating these verses a lot, but I, I, I want to do that. I want to teach these verses. Isaiah 11 says the nations are coming to God. That's restoration. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, that's Jesus, who I'm, whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. This is the father talking about his son. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for what? They wait for his law, the Torah. May noma sete, do not even begin to think. Jesus fits the bill of the Jewish Messiah. These verses indicate that God's people will love his law. And as his people expand, so does the reach of his justice on earth. Do you love God's law? That's what I want to ask us this morning. Do you love his rules, his precepts, his commandments? Do you have the heart of the psalmist who says he could meditate on them day and night? So what does God do in our hearts now in the New Testament era? What what does God do in our hearts now? Well, we can look to the Old Testament and find out. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, and uh, if you're taking notes, you can start looking at verse 22. We're probably going to start at verse verse 24, Ezekiel 36, 24. This is uh, the Old Testament, and uh, it's fairly well understood that this is talking about in the new covenant. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all or in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What are these statutes that Ezekiel would be referring to? The statutes of God are his law. Verse 17 again. Do not think. Do not even begin to think. Jesus knew the dangers of his adversaries or his listeners misunderstood what he was teaching about the law. 
I have not come to abolish katalusai. This means to annul or make invalid or to repeal. It's got the idea, when it's talking about something physical, of dissolving, dismantling, or taking something apart. Now, it's particularly used of the destruction or tearing down of an established building in the Bible. So if you want to write these down, these are all the references where this word katalusai talks about that. Matthew 24, 2, 26, 61, 27, 40, Mark 13, 2, Luke 21, 6, Acts 6, 14, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Galatians 2, 18. I think God is making a point. I think Jesus is using a word that would have been crystal clear to what he meant. He is not dissolving, dismantling, or taking apart the law. So quickly, the apostles' view of the law. Um, I want to point out three things that the apostles taught about the law. Uh, In Romans 3.10, starts out saying, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. And then uh, the apostle Paul, in the next verses, talks about, he describes the unbeliever. They, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And then he goes on, and then in verse 20, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. This is all of us before Christ. These verses describe all of us before we came to know Jesus. But what verse 20 lays out very clear is that no one is justified. No one is declared righteous by the law in God's eyes. The law does things. It gives us knowledge. It entices us to sin even more. But we hold, verse 28 that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, this verse may not mean a whole lot to you unless you've been talking to a person of the Roman Catholic persuasion or a Mormon persuasion or a Jehovah's Witness persuasion. If you have, you realize how important this verse is. This is where we get faith alone. If you have to go one place to get faith alone, this is it. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. This demolishes all false religious systems per 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. So the first thing the apostles teach about the law is no one is justified by works of the law. Number two, Romans 7, 12. If you want to turn over real quick and look at Romans 7, 12. That says, so the law is holy and the commandments is holy and righteous and good. So the second thing is that the law is good. Number three, I'll go ahead and tell you, faith in Christ establishes the law. Romans 3, 31, starting in verse 28, again. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. Most of your translations add an exclamation point there. 
On the contrary, we uphold the law. We establish the law. The law must be put in its proper place. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Listen, this is huge. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We get an amen. Amen. No man-made works-based system can give you that. If you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter of God, and there is absolutely no condemnation for you. You will never be punished eternally for your sins because Jesus was punished in your place. And this is the context of Romans 6.14 that says, um, for you are no longer under, uh, under law but under grace. We have to put the law in its correct place. So the three things the apostles taught are, no one is justified by the law. Three, not, this is not everything they taught. Two, the law is good. And three, faith in Christ establishes the law. Now, in the, in the New Testament, this is another important thing. The apostles, I, I submit, the apostles assumed continuity with the Old Testament. Now, where things have changed, we're told that, and we're told why. If fulfilled here in verse 17 means to bring to an end, then Matthew is basically saying Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to abolish it. And that doesn't make any sense. It has no meaning. So fulfill means something much bigger than that. So I don't have time to get into the details, but I want to give you some examples of continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Just real quick, write these down. Go look at them later. Uh, Deuteronomy 9.15. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, this talks about the judicial process. It says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Deuteronomy 19.15. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Well, we can compare that to Matthew 18, verse 16. Jesus says, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus carries over the same judicial process. You can also see that in 2 Corinthians 13.1 and in 1 Timothy 5.19. Write them down. Go look at them. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. This is our children's favorite verse, right? This is our kids' numero uno verses in the New Testament. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The New Testament apostles assumed continuity continuity of the law. Last example, Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is a big one. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and, get this, any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So not only does the Apostle Paul here appeal to all of the Ten Commandments, 
And he applies the passage from Leviticus 19.18 in verse 9 where it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. So uh, I'll give you one example of when the Bible tells us that this was through and this was how something was done before Jesus. And now it's like this. When there's a change, God tells us. And one place you can go and see that is Hebrews chapter 9 verses 1 through 14, and that's a long section, and I'm not going to uh, read that whole thing, but I'm going to start in verse 11. If you want to turn and look there, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. So, so the first 11 or 10 verses, he's going through all these ceremonial aspects of Old Covenant, Old Testament worship. And he kind of lays out in pretty good detail a lot of the things they had to do and why they did it and what, what was being done. But then in verse 11, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So this is an example of how these ceremonies or ordinances are no longer needed post-cross, post-resurrection. Now, we relate to God differently. We don't go to him with fear, but the law is not abolished. It's only fulfilled. I'm going to quote Calvin one more time and then finish up. Calvin says, With respect to doctrine, we must not imagine that the coming of Christ has freed us from the authority of the law. For it is the eternal rule of a devout and holy life and must, therefore, be as unchangeable as the justice of God, which it embraced, is constant and uniform. With respect to ceremonies, there is some appearance of a change having taken place, but it was only the use of them that was abolished, for their meaning was more fully confirmed. The coming of Christ has taken nothing away, even from ceremonies, but on the contrary, confirms them by exhibiting the truth of shadows. They were a shadow looking forward to Christ. For when we see their full effect, we acknowledge that they were not vain or useless. Let us therefore learn to maintain inviolable this sacred tie between the law and the gospel, which many improperly attempt to break. For it contributes not a little to confirm the authority of the gospel when we learn that it is nothing else than a fulfillment of the law, so that both, with one consent, declare God to be their author. So finally, everybody, we still have a sacrifice for sins. It was accomplished once and for all through the sacrifice of Jesus. We still have a temple, but it's greater and it's perfect and it's heavenly. We still have a high priest who intercedes for us. We still have the law, but it's not on stone tablets outside of you. 
now by his spirit, if you have trusted in Christ, the law is inside of you. It's written on your heart. So we are salt and light when we love God's law because it's a reflection of who God is. It's his character. We're loving something about God when we love his law. And we, when we declare his righteousness and justice, when we spread the gospel as the fulfillment, not the abolition of his law. So I want to appeal to you, if anybody's here and you haven't done this, to repent and trust in Christ once and for all sacrifice for your sin. And he will write his law on your heart and you will have peace with God. You'll have forgiveness of your sins and you will never again be under eternal condemnation for your sins. It's not a magic parachute for a carefree life, but it is a guarantee of freedom to obey God's good law and to possess eternal life with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your law, for your precepts, for your rules, for your commandments. Lord, I pray we would love them as we love you. And I pray we would seek to live lives that are in obedience to your law, not to earn salvation, for we have seen from your word that no one is justified, no one is made right with you through works, but as a result of what you have done and so that we can see others embrace the gospel and we can see the gospel go to the ends of the earth because we have a love for you, a love for your law, and a love for Jesus who came and did not abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. Lord, help us to be salt and to be light wherever we are, in our homes, in our work, at play, on the internet, everywhere we go, Father, may we bring your light with us and expose the works of darkness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.